As I uh, started to try, you heard me last night talk about how I started to encounter Jesus. As I tried to figure out what it was like to follow him, I thought that uh, what you were supposed to do is hook yourself up to someone that looked older and smarter than you, and they would help you figure things out, right? Isn't that kind of the trick? And so that's, that's what I tried to do. And it was only uh, a few weeks in where I was following around this guy who was older and smarter than me. He could, like, quote Bible verses and stuff. So I thought that made him a good guy to follow. That we were hanging out with uh, a group of folks, and he just asked directly this guy in this group we were with, he just directly looked at this guy and asked him, uh, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? And the guy said, I think Jesus is a really good teacher. He's just a really good teacher. And something strange happened in that moment. This guy, who was sort of like, I guess I would say my mentor, got really agitated and started arguing with him. Like really fast. Like, well, he's more than a good teacher. And he just started in. And I thought, I don't know. I thought that was a good answer. That was a really good answer. Like, good teacher is like a good answer. Isn't that a good answer? I thought it's a good answer. But he like started on this whole argument. Like, he's a liar and a lunatic and a legend and there were lots of L's. And, and, and I, I just... You know, and I, I uh, just started, I, it was just such a strange moment for me because I didn't realize that that was offensive, but I suddenly realized that in this kind of group of people, that was like a, that was a, it was like a cue to fight. You know what I mean? Have you ever noticed like in, in like church worlds, there's like little cues to fight. Like you say something like, bah, that's it. We're on, you know, and, and that was one of them, because I noticed that not just with this guy, but I noticed it with other people. And I found that strange, and I find it strange today, because many people were first attracted to Jesus because he was a great teacher, and he would stand and he would teach things, not, not just like in, in like ideas, he would tell stories that would attract people, and regularly there was this phenomenon of people that encountered Jesus where they would say, this man teaches unlike the people we see teach. He teaches as one who has true authority. And if you read through the Gospels, you find people consistently saying that. They, they kind of murmur amongst themselves. How does he do that? There's something about him. There's something about the way he talks and what he says that that has true authority. And Jesus says this about himself. He, as he's standing amongst uh, a bunch of religious teachers, he says something fascinating. He says, if anyone will try to do the things that I have been teaching, they will discover that my teaching is not my own, that it's from God. And they'll discover who I am and where I come from. I have found that to be true. I have found it to be true that the teaching of Jesus is declaration about reality. He declares in the kingdom of God what is true and real. And if anyone takes him seriously, they will discover he is exactly who he says he is and he offers a life that they never imagined possible. 
he demonstrates a reality that's found in the kingdom that is more real than anything else than anyone else experiences. But you have to like listen and you have to actually try to live it out. And you discover something else, that there's a power in the kingdom. The kingdom that he brings that's unlike any kind of other power to transform us and the world around us. Uh, the moment that I discovered this uh, the most poignantly uh, was a strange moment. I, uh, many of you know I, I uh, pastor uh, a church in our, in our city here. And uh, you know, one of the things when you're kind of involved in a city is you want to figure out how to serve the city. That's like an important part, I think, of what it means to be a community of people around Jesus is that what you do is not just for yourself. And so there's this huge festival in Arvada called the Harvest Fest. And, uh, you know, the whole city comes through, you know, with parades and carnival food and, like, little machines that make you want to throw up. You know what I mean? Those little fair rides, they're not, like, fun. They just make you dizzy. And, and so they have all that set up in, like, kind of the main city area. And we decided, you know, we should serve. And so we went to this, this committee, said, how could we serve? They said, oh, well, you know, you guys can pick up all the trash every night because nobody wants to do that. And... And uh, you can have a booth if you want. And we said, well, what could we do at the booth? They said, I don't know, something, that whatever you want. You could pass out your junk or whatever. And so we said, well, here's what we'll do. We will give, we'll, we'll give away, like, water, and then we'll do balloon animals for kids, you know? Kid, kids like balloon animals, and we'll, like, be trained how to do balloon animals. So we did a little training for a bunch of people, and we were doing balloon animals. Because, you know, we had a balloon belt and a balloon sword and balloon hats. I can make a turtle. I'm good. Uh, and so we're doing that, and then sort of casually we would just offer, if you would like us to pray for anything in your life, we would be honored to pray for you. So anything you want, we would pray, because we believe that God can change things in prayer. And so there I am, I'm standing there on this booth, that, you know, there's all these people walking by, I have a balloon belt and a sword and a hat, and I'm making a turtle. And I look over and I see this really sweet uh, woman in our church talking to another woman, and I can tell it's intense. It's kind of down the way. It's a little intense. They're kind of going back and forth, and this woman that I know is looking at me like, help. You know that look? If you're married, you know that look. You know, in a party where your spouse is looking at you like, we got to go now, and that, that's, that's how it looked. She's like looking at me like, help, and so I kind of wandered over. I said, hey, how's it going? And this, this friend of mine says, he can help you. Just ask him. And as soon as she said that, this woman turns, like, almost like laser beams, turns, looks at me, she's, she's shorter than me, and she steps right up into me like this, and she looks me in the face, says, I have a question for you. I said, okay. She says, am I going to hell because I'm a lesbian? Okay, context, balloon, belt. <laughs> Uh, just finished making a turtle, so that was slight transition, right? So, so I, <laughs> I kind of kind of freeze, I'm like, and uh, and so I did. What, what what would you do? I mean, like, how, I actually want you to think in your mind right now, like, actually be in the moment. What would you say? What would you do? 
That's right. You would dodge. So I, I, I <laughs> dodged. I just went, uh, hey, I don't even know your name. I'm Jay. I, you know, hi. Hi. What's your name? She said, no, no, I don't even want to shake your hand if you're not going to answer my question. And I could tell, you know, you could just, you can tell she, she was obviously hurt. You know, there was, there was a lot of heat in the moment. And uh, I don't want to shake your hand unless you answer my question. I said, okay. Whew, wow, this is really intense. Um, are you going to go to hell because you're a lesbian? That's the question. She said, yes. I said, very simple answer. No. She was, really? Yep, that's it. So I'm Jay. Uh, <laughs> what's your name? We'd like to meet you. And she goes, what, what, what do you mean? Wait a minute. So you're like one of those churches with like the rainbow flags out front and the whole deal. I said, no, 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 we're not. We're not actually, you know, I, I, would, I would bet, I don't know, but I would bet you would probably see us as fairly conservative. And she goes, what? How's that possible? I said, well, it's, it's really, really simple. You, you don't go to hell because you're a legend. I mean, that, that's crazy. Who, who would say such a thing? The, really, the, the dividing line for life and death and hope and loss and, is Jesus. And the key question you have to ask yourself is, what do you think about Jesus? Because it's not about if you're fat or you're skinny, or you're tall or you're short, or you're black or you're white, or you're Mother Teresa, or you're me. <laughs> I'll be the other end. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's about Jesus. Jesus holds the key to life. And I said, so really the question, can I ask you a question? The question I would ask you is, what do you think about Jesus? And she said, well, I mean, I obviously don't like him. I said, why don't you like him? What do you not like about Jesus? She goes, well, he's a Christian. <laughs> and I said, no, he's not. She says, no, of course he is. I go, no, I don't think he is. She goes, what do you mean? Of course he's a Christian. I go, no, he's not a Christian. I go, actually, I don't even think he came to start a religion. That's just not true. She goes, what? I go, well, what do you know about Jesus? Do you even? And, and we started this great conversation right there. Just stand there. We'll go back and forth. And I said, you know what I would love to do? I would be honored to spend time with you and study the life and the teaching of Jesus. And I'm willing to bet you'll be surprised. I'm willing to bet. And she goes, okay, well, I'll think about it. I said, well, here's my phone number. Here's my email. I would love to do that. And I thought, eh, that's that. Well, I get a call. A couple days later, I'd love to get together. Let's sit down and talk about the teachings of Jesus. And we started uh, a friendship. And we would sit down and we would look at different parables and teaching of Jesus and talk about it. And so we'd done this, I don't know, five, six times. And uh, one time we sat down and we were studying the parable. It's commonly called the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know that, you know that story? where the story is uh, that there's a guy, he owes a lot of money, he can't pay it back, it's forgiven, like let's say a million dollars is forgiven. And he walks out and he finds a guy who owes him five bucks. And he's so mad, he says, give me my money, the guy can't pay the five bucks. And he says, well then you're, I'm going to throw you in prison. Even though he'd just been forgiven a debt of a million dollars, he tries to extract five bucks from someone. And when the original master hears about this, he grabs a hold of him and says, what is wrong with you? I forgave you all that and you can't forgive someone else? So you're going to swap places, and we're going to forgive that other guy's debt. And 
so it is with any of us who have been forgiven much that can't forgive others. And so we're looking at that story. And, uh, and it just occurs to me as I'm listening to her, I said, you know what? Um, you're going to need to learn to forgive Christians who have made it hard for you to see Jesus. And I don't know if you've talked to someone and they, they have a physical reaction. She like literally sat up and she went, that's never going to happen. I said, well, that's what needs to happen. She goes, I'm not going to do that. So, well, you're going to need to forgive Christians. Like, you have to forgive them. Like, you bless them. You bless those who hurt you. There's power in that. You can be, like, released, and you'll experience the kingdom. This thing Jesus is talking about, you'll experience power. She goes, that's not going to happen. I go, well, okay, don't, whatever. I mean, it's your life. But that means you're going to be bitter and miserable, like, forever. So, there you go. That's fine. I mean, like, that means that you're giving people power to control you if that's what you want to do. But Jesus says, if you bless those, you you can be set free. There's freedom. But that's fine. Don't. Whatever. It's like, fine. Well, I think we're done. I said, okay, we're done. I was thinking, oh, man, that one, that did not go well. Uh, And so uh, it's a couple days later I get a phone call from her. And she's crying on the phone. I said, are you okay? She said, I, I don't know. I'm losing my mind. I think I'm losing my mind. I said, well, are you okay? Is everything okay? And, you know, uh, you know if any of you have been in social work or pastoral ministry or something, when you get crying phone calls, it usually means something really horrible is happening. Somebody died or you, you never know. So I, I'm like, what is going on? Just slow down. Tell me what's going on. She said, I think I'm losing my mind. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Slow down. Tell me what's going on. She goes, your, your words are in my head. I go, okay, slow. Just tell me what's happening. She says, well, I'm working at uh, the coffee shop I work at. It was a, kind of a, known as a gay coffee shop. And there were these people outside, and they had signs and megaphones. And one of the signs said, gay, got AIDS yet. And megaphones, they're shouting at people, you know, you're going to hell. And I mean, really just dark stuff. And we're in the coffee shop, and we're making fun of them. And we're like, you know, how stupid can you be? And she goes, and your words keep ringing through my head. I'm going to have to forgive Christians. I'm going to have to bless those who hurt me to be free. And she said, next thing I know, it was almost like uncontrollably, I was like filling up lattes, collecting muffins, and I walked out, and I looked at this man, and I said, I want you to know I forgive you. You've made it really hard for me to see Jesus. And I forgive you. And I handed it to him. And she said, I was walking away. I heard him say, it's probably poison. Don't, don't drink it. And they threw it away. And you know, Jay, you're right. It's true. There is power in this. I suddenly felt sorry for them. Not like in a way that I felt like I was better than, but that I just thought, man, I hope one day they can know Jesus the way you and I know Jesus. And I was like... Wow. I mean, I, I'm crying. You know, we're on the phone. We're crying. Now, I'm going to, this is full confession time. The next thing I said was, you didn't tell them what church you're going to, right? Because <laughs> I was picturing those signs outside our building. And she goes, no, why? I go, I, I, no, no reason. I was just curious. Just curious. Was, uh, anyway, back to the story. Good story. Let's, let's stick with the story. And I just want you to picture that scene. There's a woman standing there, blessing 
kind of looks like a scene right out of the Scriptures, doesn't it? Where things are upside down because she listened to and responded to the teaching of Jesus and found that it was true. That Jesus is declaring reality that there is freedom and forgiveness. Now, it doesn't just work in little religious worlds, but it's actually just true. It's the way humanity was meant to live, and there's a power that's found in responding to the kingdom, and you begin to recognize that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Thank you. For some reason, I, I remember just growing up thinking that when Jesus said to do things, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, or do not, do not. There are several do nots in there. I always imagine Jesus kind of wagging his finger in my face and saying, Carl, do, don't you judge. And uh, don't, don't worry. And then all the don't. For some reason, I don't know why. I don't know if it was preached that way or I just heard it that way or... I mean, my dad wasn't that way, so I don't think I got it from my dad, but I just kind of, I just always felt that, that he was very, he was just kind of perpetually upset uh, with humankind and, and myself for sure, for good reason, and he was telling me not to do stuff. Uh, I think as I've grown in my understanding of God in general and Jesus uh, more specifically, I've realized that those do nots are invitations to freedom. I now picture Jesus saying, Carl, d- don't, don't judge. I got that one. It's, it's, actually, it's not good for you. It burdens you. It weighs you down when you judge. Carl, actually, don't, don't worry. Do, do not worry. Carl, do not store up treasures on earth. It's actually not good for you. You won't like that. I mean, I know you think you'll like it, and worrying kind of, there's something about worrying that makes you feel like you're in control, maybe. That's, that's, I think that's what worry is. And, and that, I mean, I've did plenty of worrying about, I mean, isn't it ironic that I worried a lot about simply Jesus, but I did. I mean, you all kept me awake lots of nights over the last few months, but Jesus says, don't worry. He's not saying don't worry because you're not supposed to worry. He's saying don't worry because it's actually, it's actually not good for you. I want to talk about worry just for a minute, that, that one thought. I mean, I think worry is almost a synonym for fear, and as I live my life, uh, you know, as long as I've lived it and I see some of your lives and I know some of you well and kind of see the church in general, I think a lot of us are fearful people. It's kind of funny. In the Christian world, I think we have all the regular fears that everybody has in all the world. You have fears about, you know, supplies. Will you have enough money to live? And fears about your kids. Are they going to grow up to be normal? Are they going to be weird? Or, you know, I don't know. They're going to do bad things. I mean, we have all the normal fears. But then we also have kind of Christian fears. Like a little extra, especially if you're a, a communicator or a writer or a, I don't know, some kind of a servant leader, hopefully, in the, in the church, you have fears about, am I doing it right? Is this going to work? It's, what, you know, will I make sense? Am I as eloquent as Philippians? That's obviously no. But, I mean, so you have all these fears and comparisons, and so we have what I call Christian fears. So we have all, all the world's regular fears plus our own added fears, and it binds us. And Jesus is constantly saying, Carl, don't do that. Don't worry. I mean, I know he's got a speck in his eye. He does. He's got a speck in his eye. Just 
But, I mean, there's, but there's, you got a lot, I mean, I don't know if it's a redwood or what kind of, it's just a little pine tree. Mark, maybe you can help me, but it's a big log. It's a log in my eye. Just get, get that out, and then you can help your brother get the speck out. Carl, don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, haven't you noticed? Today's got plenty of issues on its own. And it's just this invitation uh, to be worry-free, to be fear-free. Have you ever actually considered what would life be like if you weren't afraid? Do you think that's possible? Do you think it's possible to only do what the scripture says, which is to fear God, and then when you fear God, all their fears vanish, because you can't fear God and man at the same time? Have you ever thought, have you ever considered honestly, what if you lived a worry-free, fear-free life? What would life feel like? What would it look like? I I was struck when you talked about Mother Teresa being like a nine-year-old girl giggling. That's that's a worry-free life. That's a fear-free life. She wasn't thinking, oh, no, I can't stop and talk to this person because I might not get to that meeting that they have me. She's not worried about that. That's a fear-free life. I actually think Jesus invites us into that. I've had several encounters throughout my life with fear, like face-to-face with fear. Uh, Partly it's occupational hazard of what we've done and where we've lived, but mostly it's just life. I think there are at least as many things to be afraid of. People ask Chris and I all the time. Somebody asked you just the other day, uh, we're going to spend some time in Beirut. We're going to Jordan uh, in the Middle East on Monday, actually. But then we're going to spend some more time in Beirut in the spring. And somebody asked her, aren't you, aren't you afraid? And her response is, what mine's, you know, ours are the same kind of. And she said, no, but I'll tell you what, downtown Denver at night is scary. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, really, for us, Beirut actually doesn't feel very scary anymore. And there are places in Denver that I wouldn't want to walk around at night. And and our little cul-de-sac and suburban Highlands Ranch at times is scary too. Some of things are scary in the suburbs, not just in the inner city. And there are so many things to be afraid of. <clears throat> I was in uh, Iraq right after, right after the American troops and the British troops and the coalition uh, went into Iraq in 2003. Some of us piled in some cars and drove off to Iraq in 2003 as well. Felt like a good idea. I'm not sure. I don't remember why we thought it was a good idea, but we just kind of jumped in our cars and just drove. Now, the funny thing is we didn't really realize that you couldn't get out of Jordan. We drove from Beirut to Damascus down to Amman, Jordan, to the border, but the border, the border didn't exist anymore because the country had fallen. There's no border guards, and so the Jordanians won't let us out of Jordan because they said there's nowhere to go to. I mean, you can't get... So there were, like a, there were tens of thousands of vehicles, literally, trying to get into Iraq that were stuck at the Jordanian, Jordanian border. So we actually spent a night in our car... And I'm pretty good at this. When I'm onto something, I'm very persistent. So I bothered the Jordanian border guards so much, they finally said, go, go. I mean, you're going to get killed or who knows what's going to happen, but just go. You're annoying the heck out of us. So we, got in, we said thank you, got in our car, and we drove off across this you know, little no man's land. There's a big Saddam Hussein arch. You know, everything was his you know, face on it then. We drove through that, and uh, very carefully, very slowly, there's nobody there. It's, you know, it's... Uh, it was pretty scary. And then right when we got through the arch, these two tanks, literally they were down there somewhere, they came flying up over this berm and actually caught air. I don't know if you've ever seen a tank catch air in front of you. It's kind of scary and exciting. Not the same. But so they, boom, 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 and the turret, like that. And so we, you know, stopped. And, uh, <laughs> and then I noticed, I noticed they were American tanks. So my first impulse is thinking, hey, they're one of us. So I, ju- I was driving one of the cars. I jumped out. I almost got shot right there. That would have been anticlimactic to get shot by an American. In, I, 
I don't know if that counts as martyrdom or not, but I, th I think not, I don't think it does. So I jumped out, I was like, hey, I'm American too. And, and then anyway, their names are Bob and Bill and they're from, they're from Colorado Springs, from Fort Carson, where I grew up. And I was like, oh, well, I, I know, I live right by Fort Carson. So we just started talking, they're like, where are you guys going? And I go, well, we're following Jesus, we're just going over there somewhere. <laughs> they're like, what are you talking about? That's crazy, you're gonna get killed. Well, we hope not, but anyway, we're just going into Baghdad or Basra, we're just driving around looking for Jesus and, and doing what we do. And they go, that's weird. I mean, nobody else is on there. Have you noticed nobody else came across the border? I said, yeah, well, we talked the guy out of it or into it and he let us go and here we are. And anyway, I had the English Bible. So I, I said, do you guys have a Bible? And they said, well, no. And I said, well, I don't know. Have you ever read one? No. I said, well, I bet you have lots of time in the tank. So do you want a Bible? And they said, sure. So I gave them my Bible and then we just carried on. So we we drove on to Baghdad and went down to Basra and had some fun, interesting things happen. On the way back after eight days in Iraq, this is, um, remember the, uh, the CNN you know, picture of the statue of Saddam Hussein kind of being lassoed by the Marines and toppled? That was April 10th, 2003. Uh, we were there April 20th, 2003. So 10 days after that happened. And then we're coming back out of Iraq. And it had been, a, it'd been an amazing eight days. Pretty exciting. It was. Uh, effective, I guess. I mean, whatever we thought we were doing seemed to go well. And we'd handed some, you know, some Arabic Bibles. Muslims, when they receive the scriptures, often will put their hand over their heart. I mean, our most common experience in Iraq when we gave a Muslim an Injil, the New Testament, for, was for them to put it on their forehead, to kiss it, to hug it, and burst out in tears. That was the most common experience when we gave our Iraqi new Muslim friends a, a Bible. And so we're driving back home, and we'd had this one CD in, in the car I was in. I don't know why. It was somebody else's CD. Uh, it was a Stephen Curtis Chapman CD, and we listened to it like 300 times, and once is enough, really, but we... we, we I'm sorry. That, okay, there's no redeeming that. So anyway, it was, it was, it was a good CD, Stephen, if you're watching. <laughs> and... Uh, but it was just, we were tired of that CD, we were listening to it, we are kind of singing along, and we are feeling, feeling pretty happy about God, and, and frankly, ourselves, and, and life is good, and we're driving along. All of a sudden, I noticed there's a car, we're going like 100 miles an hour, there's nobody on the road, there's nobody that burned out cars, tanks everywhere, and just us, flying along. Then there's a car beside us. And I was sitting in the passenger seat, my friend Samir was driving, I looked over there and I thought, that's weird, there's a car driving the same speed as us, right on this, there's nobody else out there. And I thought, and look, it looks to me like they have machine guns pointed out the window at us. And they were going like this, which, you know, in Arabic also means roll the window down, even though it's actually this, you know, to roll the window down. So my friend being bright, he rolls the window down and they yelled in Arabic, pull over now or we'll shoot you. So we pulled over and just like that, like, I don't know how it happened in two seconds. There's two of our, two of our cars, we both pulled over. They were in our cars, we were, one of the, us went in their car and uh, they pulled me out of the front seat, shoved me in the back seat. Uh, a Iraqi guy got in the driver's seat, another one got in this seat, and we, we turned right and started driving out into the desert. And I just thought, I actually turned to my friend, I said very profoundly, this is not good. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy in the passenger seat where I was sitting turned around and he had a uh, knife sheath right here, pulled the knife out and went like that. And I thought he, in fact, I actually thought he had stabbed my leg until I realized it didn't hurt, but he stabbed the, stabbed the seat and buried the knife in the seat right next to my knee. And then, uh, you know, oh, I know, actually he said, he looked at me very intently as the knife was buried next to my knee, and he looked at me and he said in Arabic, are you afraid? 
And you know how we know that in these situations, God just kind of puts a bubble of peace around you, right? That's not true. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't know how we know that. I'm just telling you that has never been the experience in my life. And I said to him, uh-huh. When he said, are you afraid? I just, I couldn't even answer. I was like, yes. And I was terrified. And then we got out. They continued to take all of our stuff and rummage through our stuff and yell at us. And they figured out it was kind of like the leader guy. So the guy came up. Another guy came up and put a, a pistol right to my head. He actually pushed it against my forehead. And he said, are you afraid to die? And again, I was actually thinking, I know the right answer is no, I'm not afraid to die. But I said, yes. <laughs> I said, Yes. So what came out of my mouth was yes. And I thought, as I said yes, I thought no. I mean, I should have said no. I'm so embarrassed. This isn't a good story. And, but yes, I, don't, I didn't want to do it. Because actually what I was thinking is he might like, not do it quite right. I just don't want, I don't mind being dead. I don't want the dying part. Like the, you know, right? The, it's the I-N-G that's the problem. And so I said yes. And then, so then he, you know, obviously as you can tell, it's anticlimactic. I mean, I, I didn't die, but here, you know, so here I am. And they robbed all of our stuff and took everything and took, siphoned the gas out of our car and, and, and went away. And uh, it's funny, they must, must have watched movies or something because the last thing they said to us is, oh, whatever you do, don't move for one hour. So then they got in the car and drove off and they left our car and uh, no, no gas or no, they took all of our stuff. But, and then we sat there for like a minute in silence. There were seven of us. And then one of us said, why, I mean, they're gone. Should we get up? And then so we all just kind of got up real slow and got back in the car. And Interesting, the end of that story is we, we drove into the nearest town for help. And the next town over was a town called Fallujah, which we'd never heard of before. And so we drove into Fallujah to the gas station. But there was about a mile long, you know, um, wait for gas. Because it was cheap, but you couldn't get it. And uh, we pulled up to the front and started telling the guys about what happened. And one of the gas station owners jumped in our car. And I thought, oh, no, now, these, now he's taking our car. But he pulled it up to the front of the line. They filled it up. Uh, they gave us $50 cash, which would have been a lot of money at that time, maybe two, three months wages. And then the elders of Fallujah invited us to their house for lunch. And we sat with the mayor and the elders, and they killed the killed a lamb and we had lunch and dinner and they wanted us to stay and they said, we kept saying, we are so sorry, we are so sorry, we don't know who those people are but they don't represent us. And then this, and the, the leader there said, and what are you doing here? And so I said, we're you know, followers of Jesus, so we're following him and looking for him here in Iraq. I, I learned a long time ago that I'm not taking Jesus anywhere. It's actually one of the most deep theological things I realized as a missionary, because it's, it's, it's tempting for a missionary or a minister to think that we're carrying Jesus someplace where he's not yet, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever carried him, but he's heavy. And so it's quite a burden to carry Jesus to people who don't know him, but that's not true. It's bad theology. Jesus is already there. Maybe, maybe, the best I can think of, that maybe we're doing, maybe we're encouraging people to open their eyes and see that he's there. We might be doing that, but I just like to say I'm following him. I'm looking for him. And I think I've actually found him in many ways right here in Fallujah. Isn't that amazing? And we had one Arabic gospel uh, left. Actually, just the gospel of Luke. We gave it to them. They, they made us promise to come back. But we were scared. We were actually scared by that encounter. I, we went back home. We were late. My wife was scared. My kids were scared because we had disappeared. And we were off the grid for a little while. 
Um, they'd, taken our, they'd taken our satellite phone, so we didn't have any way to contact any of our family. So she heard from somebody else, from somebody else, from somebody else that we'd been kidnapped in Iraq, and that's all she knew until she saw me. And so there was a, a day and a half, two days that were pretty scary uh, for our family, for Chris and the kids, and, and had been for us as well. And then three weeks, three weeks later, we felt like we should go back. And again, you just kind of think, why, how, why, what was I thinking then? I don't remember exactly, but I just had this thought, I think we should go back. And the people in Fallujah want us to come, and they wanted more Bibles. And, and they were so anxious and open and hungry and wanting to follow Jesus. They wanted to. There was, there was no stretch for them at all, which is what we've always found to be true in the Muslim world. There's no stretch for Muslims to begin the journey of following Jesus. And so we did. Before we did, I asked uh, Chris and the kids, and I said, you know, this is uh, what we're thinking. You know, are, are we all okay about this? I know I was just taken there and threatened, and it's pretty scary, and are we okay? And, and we all agreed that this is what we do, and so we followed Jesus, and he's inviting us, so we went back one more time. And again, it was incredible. Just a couple years before that, we'd, I'd been speaking in a series of mosques in southern Lebanon. I'd been preaching in mosques at the invitation of the Hezbollah, uh, at their invitation, as I mentioned last night. And uh, I'd done this several times you now at several mosques. And then it was a Tuesday night, and I was supposed to speak at a new mosque down by Tyre, Lebanon, that Friday for their Friday main, main prayers. They'd asked me to come and give the main message about uh, Jesus. And I'd said yes. And somebody came to our door and delivered a paper that said, if Carl Medeiros goes to the mosque and they name this town this Friday, we will kill uh, him and his family. And they delivered it to our door. They knocked, dropped the paper, and ran. I picked up the paper. And so that night we called a prayer meeting, as you do in those kinds of situations. And it changes your prayer meetings when they're like that. It's no, the prayer meeting doesn't start out with our dear Heavenly Father. You know, there's no King James English. It's just tears and lots of the word help. And we didn't know what to do. Our friends couldn't counsel us. Nobody wanted to say, yeah, go ahead and go, Carl. It'll be fine because, I mean, who wants to send you off? And, and so we just decided we would pray, but we would pray together. And we'd go with the, the default would be no. I mean, the sensible thing, if they're going to kill us all, then it would be no. So unless God told both of us yes, the answer is going to be no. So she went down. We had a little bomb shelter prayer room down below our house in Beirut. She went down to pray first. I don't know, excuse me. I went down to pray first. And I came back up, and I remember her kind of saying, so what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I mean, I have an idea, but, but we already knew what I would think. That Be skeptical when you hear the answer of the prayer that you already wanted. So the way I'm wired would be that God would have told me, yes, go ahead and go. But it may or may not have been God. But I kind of thought that, and I was skeptical. And so I said, you go pray. And I thought, I'll bet she'll, you know, she's my wife, and most of the time loves me a lot. And I think she doesn't want me necessarily most of the time to die. And so, you know, she's going, she's going to hear that I shouldn't go, and I should be safe. And so she disappears for like one minute. She's gone for like a minute. And she comes back, and she has tears in her eyes. And I said, what happened? I mean, she must have just got down to the bomb shelter and just turned around. And she said, I went to open the door, and God spoke to me very clearly, like Isaac was not Abraham's, Carl's not yours, tell him to go. So I think we were doing pretty well in our marriage that week, so I don't think she was trying to get rid of me. I think it was actually God. And I was shocked, and I said, okay. And so I went, and that night there were Hezbollah guards all in the back, about 30 guys with AK-47s uh, protecting me, they said. And that, I mean, it's a little bit of a different feel of protection than how I feel here, but... 
they turned out they were. I preached that night for about an hour and a half. And uh, actually what happened was amazing, but I don't want to get into that. I want to get into the point and finish the point that when Jesus invites us to come to him, it is him that relieves fear. It's not a thought. It's not a positive thinking exercise. Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever laid awake at night when you're worried about something and you've decided to not worry anymore, right? Isn't that actually what keeps you awake? I say go ahead and just worry because thinking about not worrying doesn't work, does it? So this is not about, this is not about positive thinking. You're not trying to work yourself up into not being afraid of stuff. The one who relieves us of fear is himself, Jesus. It's Jesus. When we come to Jesus, that's what he said to Peter. When he said, Peter, on the water, he's walking. Everybody was terrified. It's a ghost. He said, come. Peter came. I don't know what Jesus was thinking of inviting him to come. I don't know what Peter was thinking about getting out of the boat. Jesus said, come. Peter said, if it's, if it's you, Lord, invite me. He said, yes, it's me. Come. He came. When we come to Jesus, when we're with Jesus, so whether it's in Iraq or in your cul-de-sac, in your suburban life or downtown in the inner city, or if it's just that next step, I want to follow Jesus in that next step of my life. I want to commit myself to him. I want to, die. I want to trust him that when it says, don't store up treasures on earth, he actually means that. And that's good for me. I want to believe that, but I can't quite do it. The one who gives us the freedom to not worry is Jesus. When he says, follow me, he's not, it's not an ethereal, mystical following of something. It's an actual relationship with the actual person that sets you free. Before we do a few minutes, maybe, of Q&A, we've all got a little bit long uh, this morning. I actually want to invite you to do something here real quick. We'll do this like in one minute. I want to make sure that none of us think we're just talking about only teachings and principles. I love how you point out, Jay, that we should love the teachings of Jesus and not shrink back from those at all or have to say, yes, but. I love that. And I will also say, and also, it is not just about following in our own will these teachings. Don't worry. It's about an encounter with the living Christ. And then he comes and he sets us free. Wouldn't you like to be free from worry? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could say to your spouse or to yourself what Chris was able to say to me, that you are God's and you can trust God. He's trustworthy. The Jesus that you follow is followable. You can be with him. And when you're with him, you're free. So let's keep this really simple. I think there are some people, I just had this thought uh, yesterday, and I shared it with this guys, these guys and said, is this okay if we do this? And we thought it was good. And so I think there are some of you who are actually encased in worry and fear. You've been trapped in a cycle of worry and fear. All of us have worry and fear. But some of you actually are trapped by that. And I actually think, Jesus could come now and at least to a certain degree set some of us free. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be awesome if we were actually set free from that trap? And so what I want you to do, we're not gonna, it's not a progression. You know, you know, lots of churches I grew up with, I got people, you get people to raise their hand first, eyes closed and heads bowed, of course, and then you got them to stand, and then, they got, then you got them to come forward, right? 
So we're just going to bypass all that. We're going to keep eyes open, and I'm just going to have you stand where you are, and then I'm just going to say the people around you are going to pray for you for like 30 seconds. So all of you are ministers. You're all people that love and believe in this stuff. So I'm not the guy doing it all. You're doing, you're praying for each other. So if that's you, if you feel like you are entrapped in some way in worry or fear, the thing that might be the first step is for you to admit that and stand up. So would you do that? So how about this? How about the ones now that are around who are not, I'm not saying that you don't have any worry or fear, and I know you're not saying that by staying sitting down, but you maybe aren't trapped in that. How about if you just would stand up, sidle on over. This is Colorado. We say things like sidle. Sidle on over. (laughs) Just sidle on over. Put a hand on the shoulder and just pray for a minute. Pray a really good prayer like, be free. Go ahead. So this is the audience question. Uh, should theological differences ever affect unity? Where do the warnings in the New Testament of false teachers have a place? Yeah, I think Chris wants to answer this. <laughs> You're up, Bart. Bart's up. Bart, that's you, man. Well, if you think that Jesus said that it's our unity that will attract all people to him, then it seems to me we shouldn't let theological differences interrupt our unity. When I, uh, thank you, when when I began thinking a little more expansively about the life of Christ, uh, I had many people, this is probably 20 years ago, saying, uh, are you orthodox? And it really made me think. I thought, gosh, am I still orthodox? And then I, I, I was just in a, uh, a cafe, and I had a napkin or a placement. I started drawing out, what, well, what is orthodox? And then I realized, well, there were several orthodoxies. There was, like, the orthodox orthodoxy, and they kind of think that's the right orthodoxy. And then there's a Roman Catholic orthodoxy. But then there's a Protestant orthodoxy, and then there's my version of the Protestant orthodoxy. And... And then there's other people's versions of those. And, and some of them overlap on some points, but not others. And by the time I was done, this placemat just looked like a whole bunch of circles and rings and arrows. And, and it, it dawned on me that this may be a myth, this idea that we could have a precise orthodoxy. If God is mystery, if God is infinite, uh, and if the only way God expressed himself was in a human form, you, you don't... Yeah, like, I, when I think of Linda, I've known her 43 years, five months, and several days. No, we've been married that long. It's been uh, 44 or so that we've known each other. And if you ask me for a precise definition, an orthodox definition of Linda that would really explain her perfectly, forget it. I mean, she's too complicated. She's a mystery. That's why I love her. I mean, she's different. She's different than the woman I married. She's changed. I've changed. Now, with God, we're dealing with a being who is not even just three-dimensional like us. He's infinite dimensions. So why would we think we could get him down to one formula of orthodoxy? That being said, 
we need to think through our own thoughts as best we can. We're supposed to love God with our minds, not just with our hearts. We're supposed to love him with our minds, our hearts, our soul, and our strength. So th- thinking is important. Uh, Dr. Wright's going to, I trust, share some very uh, solid thinking with us tomorrow. That's, that's his gift in the body of Christ is sharpening our thinking. But I don't think we should make differences a breakup over unity. Mm. Thanks, Bart. The second part, though, right, was what do we do with false teachers? Yeah, yeah I left that part you for plan, you. You got a plan for false That's your part. Well, yeah. you. I mean, we, we burn them at your the stake. Your mic isn't on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. I'm not meant to answer that. <laughs> Darren, help me with that mic. I said we burn them at the stake. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, my, my thoughts changed over the years. I don't know if this is right, but I, where I am right now with, you know, I mean, I, I think it's fair to, for you, some of you that didn't really know all that you're getting in, maybe you signed up for this thing because of N.T. Wright or for one name, but you didn't know all of us, and so you didn't know what we're going to talk about. And my guess is somebody in here might wonder that about one of us, you know, so that would be a personal question. Let's not make it that personal. Let's say there's a person X who is actually teaching something that somehow you figure out is wrong. So back to Bart's point, you know, I'm not exactly sure how you figure out it's wrong because we all think our version of reading the Bible is the correct way, but you've decided for sure that's, unor- I mean, that's just outside the boundaries of anything biblical. What do you do about that? I actually have realized that I don't need to do anything about that. And so what if, he's, what if he has a microphone? We'll ignore him. I mean, seriously, ignore him. Get on with, God's bigger than that. I mean, if something that I've said is wrong, I mean, do you think there's a possibility that something that I've said is wrong? Yes, 100%. No, yes. Uh, people read my book, Speaking of Jesus, and they say, I'm not sure I agree with all of it. And I say, even I don't agree with all of it, and I wrote it. So, of course, I mean, anyway, I think we just kind of relax with that a little bit. I mean, are there false teachers? Are there wolves and sheep's clothing and I mean the scripture says that there are so it's not that we're not concerned but I I think God's bigger than that and so you smile carry on pray for discernment don't be foolish don't believe everything that's said weigh things with the scriptures and and the Holy Spirit and with a few a few good friends that you trust and carry on I mean it's not I know there are some Christians who think it's their job to rid the body of Christ uh there are some loud voices these days in kind of evangelical circles who are doing conferences like this, but that are against, they're based on against something. I think that's unbelievably ridiculous. It's just a waste of time. Why are they doing that? I mean, I think it probably makes them tired and grumpy. It makes me tired and grumpy just looking at them. So I just think, I mean, that's my, I not, not everybody agree with that. Part of that's my personality is that I, I can be very tolerant of people saying really ignorant things and just kind of smile and say, great. I hope that works for you, and God bless you, and move on. Anybody ever, anybody else have a more sensible answer to that? But that's kind of how, <laughs> that's kind of how, I mean, I, I really do think of it that way. I think we don't, we don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. Sure. Uh, and even in the spirit of what we're doing with you in this conversation is, you know, these aren't complete answers. These are just responses, and, and thanks for just saying, yeah, this is where we're at. But, um, this is right around the time when... People are pretty filled up with information. How are you doing? You doing okay? Okay. So just try to lean in. I think I think some of what we're going to talk about this is tonight. This is someone's earplugs. 
I'd like you to have those. Um, we're going <laughs> to... Sorry. Um, uh, what we're going to talk... We're going to talk about tonight, I think has, uh, well, I, I saw a question up there, just talks about, you know, how, do, how is it that we're transformed? How do we change? Uh, how do we actually be shaped to be more like Jesus? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure your story and kind of how you've processed that, that kind of a question. You know, you've, you've heard a bit of my story where I started to follow Jesus rather suddenly, and then try to get around some people that helped me, and they almost immediately trained me in how to like talk about Jesus with others. And that was really fun for me because I had had such an incredible experience of God's grace and His, just His love for me, that I wanted to tell people about Jesus. And so next thing I knew, I was telling all my friends, everyone I knew about Jesus, and um, it became really busy, really fast. You know, so like my kind of life with God became, went from zero, actually probably negative, to like 100 miles an hour, like instantly. And so over the, just, just a few weeks, uh, I found myself leading Bible studies like almost every night of the week with different people. I was starting to see, uh, I didn't know they were Bible studies then, I just thought they were friends I was getting together to talk about. Jesus, I would usually just take the thing I heard at, uh, this is a good trick, uh, the thing I'd hear at church, and then I would just show up at Bible study and just say it exactly the way I heard it taught, because I didn't know it there that much. And then if somebody asked a question, I would turn to the room and go, what do you guys think? <laughs> and then people would bat it around for a while, and then I would go, okay, let's move on. And I, you know, that's, it's a good trick. You can try that. But, but, but I, I was just really active and started to see all these things happen, and I can remember one specific evening, driving home, and I was so excited. I'd actually been working all day. Uh, I'd been um, going to some classes, and then I actually went to a youth thing, and then I went and did uh, like a little Bible time with some folks after that. So I've been going since early in the morning till late at night. I was driving home, and I was just so excited about all the stuff I was getting to do, and this guy swerved and almost hit my car. And so I just said, Praise the Lord. No, that's not what I said. What I, what I did was I zoomed up in front of him and I cut him off. And then he zoomed in front of me and cut me off. I zoomed in front of him and cut him off. And then I put, forced him onto the side of the road and I got out and I punched his hood and put a dent, big dent, in the center of his hood of his car. And then he got scared and put it in reverse and drove around me and I said a number of things that I cannot repeat presently. All right, now, here's what happened next. I got into my car only to kind of catch like the middle of a worship song. <laughs> Still playing, <laughs> you know, like. And something hit me all at once, like, I think something might be wrong. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. And... I didn't really know what to do about that. See, because I, I was doing everything I knew to do on behalf of other people. I was doing everything I'd been taught to do. I was very busy. I was really active in doing, like, God's stuff. And it was really important to me. It wasn't like a fake thing. It was very important. But I think then, and I think most people now, have an expectation that if you actually are having something happen in your life with God, that you're supposed to become something in the process. 
Like it's supposed to shape you somehow. Jesus says things like this. Uh, Listen to this. In Luke 6, verse 43, Jesus says this. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I mean, think about the simplicity of that teaching of Jesus. It's so simple that what's in you comes out of you, and that so much of what sort of religious conditioning does is tries to figure out how to get us to behave differently when Jesus is saying, I want to shape who you are. And I was recognizing really early on that a lot of the activity wasn't reshaping who I am. It was even changing things around me, but it wasn't changing me. I like to ask people sometimes, like, has anyone here ever told a lie? Anyone here ever told a lie? Anyone here ever told a lie? Okay, there's some of you got your hands up, so we know you're lying for sure. <laughs> the others are humble. Now, now, if you ask a next question, which is really simple, which is, who here is a liar? Less hands. Okay, so, so it, now, now just think of what a strange, like, just, just that, like, that, that little quiz right there. We do things that somehow we think are divorced from who we are. But with the simplicity that Jesus speaks of, he says... Well, the things that you say are stored up from what's inside. And that somehow Jesus thinks that the kingdom that he's bringing is going to transform people. You know, I I had really quickly learned a message that could help get people into heaven. You know, like that I knew some things about Jesus that I thought would like help people get into heaven. And those are the things I was kind of trained to talk about. But what I slowly began to realize is I didn't know very many ways to get heaven into people. And that is the basic message of Jesus, that the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God is at hand. And over and over, I mean, just to look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us ways that we can have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees in the kingdom of God. When we listen to that phrase, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, sometimes we think that these good religious guys, the Pharisees, Let's say they were going 50 miles an hour, and Jesus is saying, you need to go 55 miles an hour. And they were like heavy-duty dudes. So that would be like really stressful. Like think of the most like really like holy person you know, and if I said, you got to do better than that, that's stressful. That's tiring. Even right now as I'm saying this, it's making some of you tired because we're so conditioned to think legalistically about behavior. Some are supposed to change our behavior. When Jesus says... I want to do something in you such that your behavior is a natural consequent of the transformation of your heart. That a good tree will bear good fruit. The passage that really began to transform my life in this, and I'll just quote it and say a couple things about it, and then I think we'll hear a lot more about this tonight, is in John chapter 15, Jesus says a beautiful thing. He says, I am the true vine... And you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. I mean, if you connect to me, apart from me, you can do a few things fairly well. 
Right? That's it. Is that not it? That's not it. Sorry, hold on. Let me, let me check my notes. Oh, that's right. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the picture is of an intimate, connected life with Jesus such that as you're connected to him, his life flows through you and that you are bearing a different kind of fruit. Your life begins to look different. The number one way to fail in obeying the law is to try to obey the law. Did you hear what I just said? The number one way to fail in trying to obey the law is to try to obey the law. That you have to aim somewhere else. And Jesus is saying that as you aim at life with him, he will do something in and through you. That there's another road of the way of the kingdom. And it's present active, it's experiential, and intends to shape us. I heard someone say just very briefly in one talk talking about this, he asked a question to the room, and I was in the room, and it, I think it changed my life forever. He was looking at this passage, John 15, and he said, I have a very simple question for you. Are you codependent on Jesus? Like, are you so intertwined with him that you can't imagine what your life would be like without him? And more than that, how desperate are you for the love that he has for you, and how present is that to you? That he loves you. Like that you know that you know that he loves you. That you breathe in his love so that you no longer need to be afraid. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be angry. Why would you need to be? Because the kingdom's never in trouble and he loves you. And he asked a really simple question. I'll ask you right now. What do you love about Jesus? What do you love about Jesus? And if you can't answer that quickly, like if you start talking about, I I remember asking a guy this once uh, a few years ago, and he immediately launched in this whole thing on how he was born again in 1987 at a Billy Graham crusade. And I went, 1987? We're all of a sudden in 1987. You're telling me a story about 1987? I said, what do you love about Jesus? Present tense. He goes, yeah, in 1987, I was born again at a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, That's a bad answer. I remember saying that to him. I go, that's a really bad answer. He goes, what do you think? How dare you? No, it's a bad answer. Here's why it's a bad answer. If I said, what do you love about your wife? And you said, oh, it was a great wedding. (laughs) I I would know something was wrong with your marriage. Because this thing of life with Jesus is supposed to be present active. And throughout, throughout even the life of Jesus and throughout the history of his followers, there's these clues, there's these hidden treasure troves of ways that we can find life with him that shapes us on the inside and makes us into a different kind of person, changes our wanter and makes us into people that don't just seek to obey but want to obey because we love him and we know his love. So I think we're going to talk more about that uh, with these other folks. So you're up. Whoever's next. Thank you. It's hard to see up here. (laughs) Anyway, I asked Carl, I go, if I pass out, what will you do? And he goes, don't worry, I'll get you off the stage. I'll just pull you off by your ankles. (laughs) So anyway, we got that covered. Um, 
No, it's so nice for all of you to be here, and um, it's great to hear all the speakers. It would be nice to hear all of your stories as well, and I think God just smiles on all of you. You are his creation, and um, he, I, I don't know, it's just wonderful to come together as a family and just to um, embrace Jesus together. Um, this first slide, we lived in Lebanon for 12 years, and um, we came back one summer and visited my family in St. Louis. My brother lives down there. And I was driving the kids to the zoo in St. Louis. And, um, you know, I'm just bombarded with all these billboards. And in Lebanon, things are more simple, or they were. And here are all these billboards, buy this, buy that, eat this, eat that, you know, and I'm just driving along. And all these signs. And then all of a sudden, I just see this billboard. I don't know if that's the one that was in St. Louis. I found it on Google. But, um, but it just, when I read that sign and just saw Jesus, I was like, and I, you know, just a sign, and the word Jesus, there is power in the name of Jesus, and so don't underestimate that, and none of you do, but um, I'm, I just love the name Jesus in any language, and it's not just in English, but um, for me, Jesus means so much, so when Jay said, what does Jesus mean to you? I mean, I can think of things that just happened today. I mean, my sister called and said, thank you so much for praying for me and my son. You know, just parenting gets hard sometimes, and people just need just a, a short prayer of just encouragement. I know if you're parents, you, you understand that. And um, for me, I, I don't know. For, for me, Jesus is the one who rescued me when I felt like I wasn't going to make it. So for me, Jesus helps me to breathe, and I just am desperate for him. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit, and I just want to encourage anyone. I don't, we have talked about how wonderful Jesus is, and for me, Jesus met me in my pain. And I don't know if any of you have pain or have had pain and have experienced how wonderful Jesus is in reaching out when you feel like you're not going to make it. And I've had those moments when I've been down and out in a deep, dark place, and yet Jesus rescued me from myself and from the pain I was um, dealing with. I'll just tell you a little bit about my journey. Um, when I was in high school, my senior year, this might be a little bit hard. Um, anyway, I'm from a big... Greek family. There's eight kids in the family, and we're pretty much like that big, fat Greek family. You know that movie, um, the big, fat, yeah, wedding or whatever it's called. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're like that. We're loud. We love to laugh. We love each other, and just um, a really tight-knit family. Well, my senior year in high school, in the spring, um, my dad was out on the fr um, back porch with my younger brother, sleeping, and then it got cool. It was the springtime. There, we had a screened-in porch. But he came in, and he wanted to ask my mom for a blanket. And, and my mom wasn't breathing. And um, so my dad started yelling for all of us. And we came up, and my mom had suffered from a... Um, she had a blood clot, but we tried to resuscitate her, all of us kids and my dad. My dad was a doctor. But um, that night she passed away at the age of 44, leaving eight kids. 
And I just think, you know, it was just such a hard, hard time because for me, I was living like a carefree teenager and most of the things that were important to me were like, oh, I wonder what the boys are like, you know, or just everything about boys and just trying to be funny and all this stuff. And then my whole world changed and everything was turned upside down and I didn't know how to function. I stayed home from school for the rest of the year. I was um, a month and a half shy of graduating and my teacher said, you know what, you can stay home. We know your situation. Be home with your your siblings. And I had a two-year-old brother. He's the one who had the corner store food. That's my youngest brother. And he's um, 15 years younger than I. But um, for me, it was, it was really a hard place because I grew up in a Greek Orthodox church, and I revered God. And, um, but at, after that happened, I let my heart get really... I mean, everything went dark. I just became a very angry person. I was angry at God. That's a bad, I mean, that's a, not a good place to be. So I was really angry at God and, um, and just really, I didn't, I couldn't function. I really didn't function. And um, I just really became angry and just, my heart just became so hard. And I didn't trust God. I didn't trust anyone, really. And then, but then it was just like, People kept, I knew, like, people who were, you know, following Jesus, but I kind of was like, ah, I don't know. You know, I still didn't trust God, but people kept pursuing me and telling me about Jesus. And then finally, um, my heart just, God really transformed my heart, and I, my heart went from stone to flesh. And there is a verse from Ezekiel. Um, 36, 26, and it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. And I remember when my heart was so dark, um, I went jogging with a friend at college, and she said, you know, have you ever read the fruit of the spirit? And I go, no, I don't know what that is. And she showed me what the fruit of the spirit is, and it's like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And and I said, oh, I don't have any of that. And all I have, the only fruit I have is anger, bitterness, you know, all this. But as, as time went on, God's spirit was breathed into me. And my life was transformed. And um, I don't know if this is making any sense. But um, uh, I just want to say that Jesus is for you. And sometimes hard things happen. But in those hard times... That's when I, I really sense the love of Jesus because, you know, when you read the um, Bible and it, I don't know, I'm just, sorry, I have to stop for a moment. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, I really believe that Jesus, while, while we watch him, he does reveal the Father. And when he says, to Mary and Martha, and he's heartbroken when Jesus dies, and he weeps. It makes me feel like Jesus is human. He cares for us. That is the revelation of God's heart, too. God loves us. He hurts when we hurt. And so it, everything that was taught to me as people were pursuing me, they're like, Jesus, Jesus, you know, just sharing his kindness and his love to make me 
to walk out of the darkness into the light. And um, let's see, I just have to look at these for a few seconds. Okay. So anyway, I feel like in that first stage of life of having my heart changed from stone to flesh, I um, feel like it's some, everybody's been mentoring, sen, mentioning centering. And um, I just started taking pottery class. And um, the first part of pottery is you have to do centering. You have to put the clay on the wheel, get the right speed going, and then you have to have the clay um, centered perfectly or your, the pot will be wonky. And so anyway, I love that word, but um, I thought, you know what, this, you know, this doesn't look that hard. I think I can do this, you know. And so um, I started, and then it was so difficult. And it reminds me, you know, Jesus, or God is the, the potter, and we're the clay. And I love that God is so precise and so gentle with us. And so picture him as the potter and you as the clay. And he is molding something beautiful out of your pain, out of your past, out of whatever you're dealing with. But he wants the best. And he wants to make something beautiful out of whatever you're dealing with because he's for you. And so that's, I just feel like that's where my life was. And then after re realizing that, I went from stone to flesh. God was working in my life and forming something. And then I met Carl. Sorry. No, I'm talking too much. Oh, it says zero. Oh. Oh. Then I met Carl, and, um, and when I met him, it was 1984, and he, he um, as soon as we got serious, he goes, well, do you feel called to Beirut, Lebanon? And I was like, no. You know? Everybody, everybody's leaving Lebanon, or they're being held hostage, so... <laughs> And he, he called me, and he said, well, uh, we can't really date anymore. And I go, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> he's pretty serious about Lebanon. So um, anyway, he called me the next day, and he said, well, I kind of changed my mind. I go, about Lebanon or about me? And he goes, well, about Lebanon. <laughs> and so we went, we went to Lebanon in 1992. And um, the next phase of my life, I feel like, again, God is the potter, I am the clay, and you can change to the next. Oh, we skipped one. Maybe hit the next one and then the next one. Oh, yeah, there. Okay. So in Lebanon, this is my little drawing. <laughs> I know. I used to be an elementary school teacher, so you guys are big and kind of scary. No. <laughs> um. Anyway, we went to Lebanon, and I really felt prepared, and we thought, oh, I think we can do this. And it, they had just finished 16 years of civil war, and the whole country was upside down. I mean, there, it looks like pictures of Iraq that you see on TV or Afghanistan, some of the bombed out areas. And we got there, and I didn't do well at all. Carl was off and running. His dream came true. He was on the streets preaching and doing whatever, and not really being around home. And we had two little girls, and we didn't have water, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have a phone, and I missed my family. So what did I do? I just cried and cried and cried. And um, um, yeah, at that time, I feel like all I could think is like, 
well, when is life going to get easier? And I said to Carl, I go, Carl, when, you know, we're laying in bed, and I go, when is life going to get easier? And he goes, well, did Jesus have an easy life? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, so, I know, yeah, so. Actually, actually, that was good for me to hear in some sense, but not totally. I wanted comfort, but, but, um, <laughs> but I will say that um, in that whole process of that pain, I had the painful experience of losing my mom, but then God breathing his spirit in me, and I really feel like I was resuscitated to go forward, but then this piece of when I said, when is life going to get easier? I feel like Jesus said, well, you've come to Lebanon. You have your ideas, but let me breathe my life into you, but you need to die first. And I'm like, oh, great, you know. So death, again, no. <laughs> anyway, in the Bible, before Jesus died, he predicts his death, and he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will remain only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And um, one of our Dutch friends told me that verse. He goes, I don't know why, but I keep getting this verse for you. I, I must have just looked awful, because he goes, I don't know, it just says, unless a kernel of wheat dies, you know, and I'm like, yeah, that's probably about me, but it really, <laughs> I really was dying, I didn't do well, I, yeah, so, I mean, I would go to call my family at a phone central, and um, you'd pay five dollars and go in a little phone booth at the post office, and I'd go in, and I'd go, hi, everyone, and then um, the phone would just click, you know, off, you know, they go, no refund, you know, and I would just say hi and then cry. So it was just what, it was one of those things where all the comforts were stripped from me. But in that time, it was the Lebanese who came to me, and they were the ones nurturing me when I thought, you know, I've come to Lebanon to serve you, and they were serving me, which is so humbling. And, and as American, going into the Middle East, sometimes we think we know everything, you know, and yet they are so intelligent. They speak so many languages, and again, it's humbling. It's humbling to go in, not know the culture, and say, I need help. I need to know how to live, and also to learn the language and ask for help to learn the language. So for me, this whole death process was a good thing, and if you look at the first seed, it's like this proud little seed, this little kernel of wheat saying, I can do everything by myself, and I don't need any help, and, and um, it remains that way. It stays as a single seed, and you're like, I know Jesus, but really, you're not, when you're not living in community and relying on each other, you are that single seed, and unless you die and live in community and rely on each other and live humbly, then you will not bear a lot of fruit. So for me, it was the next step was dying and um, really saying, God, have your way in me and make me a servant. Make me a servant just like these people, like the Lebanese are serving me. I remember one night we didn't have much money. We lived on $500 a month. And um, I was home with the girls. 
And we were, we were really hungry. I mean, we really, like here, we have so much food all the time, but there we, we didn't have anything to eat, like literally. And the girls started crying, then I started crying. And then there was a knock at the door, and an older lady from down from the village where we lived, she walked up this little dirt road and had a whole tray, carry, she was carrying a whole tray of food. Like she had a wonderful Lebanese meal for me, and she said, I just wondered, I thought you might need this. And, you know, I went to, you know, when you're desperate, God meets you. But if we're never desperate, do we ever see God's miracles or angels or whatever you want to call it, just God's provision? No. So I think for me, this whole death thing was God saying, look at, look at who I am. Look at, and Jesus. And I don't know, I just, I'm so thankful for that. And um, let's see. Another thing that Jesus says is um, make sure that we, we are the salt of the world. The light. We're the salt of the earth. And make sure you don't lose your saltiness. And in Lebanon, you would buy bags of salt. And actually, the salt would lose its saltiness. So I would make something and put the salt in, you know, like a tablespoon. I thought, well, that's odd. And then I put some more, and it still didn't have the flavor. So salt actually does lose its saltiness. I don't think it happens here in America, but it does there. And um, yeah, it's interesting. And I just, and how do we stay salty? I believe we sit with Jesus. We have to sit with him. My brother says, you know, I think it's just coffee with JC every morning. You know, and that's what should get us going. And I love the morning where it's quiet. I have a coffee. I have a notebook and a Bible. And just, I just read through the four Gospels, and I just thought, this is awesome, just to really sit and walk through the Gospels with Jesus. And I love, I love how he, um, how Kathy said the thing about dignity that story of when um, Jesus is on his way to Jairus, Jairus' daughter's sick, and he, everybody's like, hurry, hurry, you know, and he's taking his time, and the woman that has been bleeding for a long time um, touches him, and he goes, who touched me? And I think at that moment, he wanted to look at the woman just to give her dignity. He wanted to stop. And he wasn't saying, who touched me? He knew, but I think he wanted to stop and look at her and just say, you are a dignified woman. And I love how, um, well, everybody's stories, but um, who was the one who said their wife went up? Oh, Philip Yancey said his wife went up and hugged the leper. And I just, we learn how to treat people through Jesus just by reading his stories. And um, so... That's, I don't, is that it? Sorry. <laughs> I am just not good at this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just. <laughs> I just have. And I kind of have a monotone voice, but I'm really tired. So, but there's one more picture. The last picture my daughter drew. Yes. This is a cedar of Lebanon, and um, she drew this in high school. And I just want to encourage all of you to just remain rooted in God's love. And this is a cedar of Lebanon with God's hands that she drew. And just, just know that God is for you, 
And if you stay rooted in his love, he will help you through any trial, and he will, he will just raise you up to help other people, to get them out of a pit that they may be in. So just be encouraged and know that he loves you, he's for you, and he's for everyone else. So stay with people and stay with Jesus. Boy, I'd hate to see it if she felt comfortable up here. Man, that was good. Uh, and I'll just share real quickly, just kind of my, my version of me being God's instrument for her death. <laughs> just, just say, use me, Lord. Here I am. Um, <clears throat> I just want to just reference this verse kind of real quickly. First, she mentioned Mary and Martha too, and you know it, but you know, um, she had a sister, Martha had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all, all the preparations that had to be made. And then Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. I, I grew, unlike her big fat Greek family, uh, who are a lot of fun, um, I grew up in a family that was uh, fully focused on ministry. It wasn't God, family ministry, or God ministry, or it was just ministry. And uh, my dad was a pastor, and I mean, I grew, grew up in a good home. I'm thankful for my parents, and there was many things that were a blessing about them. But I grew up in a home that just focused just on ministry. And so she said it. When we got to Lebanon, we were both 30 years old in uh, 1992. Uh, it was my dream come true. I'd been thinking about moving to the Middle East all my life. I felt called. Uh, when I was seven years old, I actually heard God's voice as a seven-year-old uh, boy. And since I was about 12 or 13, I knew I'd go to the Middle East. And so I was very focused. And so I said with, uh, with all sincerity to her on her first date, if you're not willing to move to the Middle East, then we can't date. Uh, it's a little intense, I know, kind of weird. But that's just, I mean, I just knew that's, that's where we're going. And so we got there, and I'm thinking, you know, finally, God's got his man in the Middle East. I don't know what God's been doing all this other time without me there, but here I am. And, uh, and I would have never said it that way then, but I look back on it now, and I think I, I, think I did think a bit of that. And, um, and there was just something inside of me that drove me, and I just had this incredible drivenness to, to conquer. Uh, uh, and actually, it was the whole Middle East. And, uh, you know, the visions were huge, and we had these silly, remember the PowerPoint present, not, well, they weren't PowerPoints back then, acetates, you know, overhead projectors, and our last, my last Sunday, our last Sunday at our little vineyard church in Colorado Springs that sent us out about 250 people, I put a little diagram on the overhead of seven cities, and I said, our, our vision is to plant seven churches in seven Middle Eastern cities in seven years, and everybody just said, praise the Lord. Nobody ever asked, like, do you speak Arabic? Or, you know, any kind of basic question. They just, they were so excited for us. And so they sent us out with great, you know, fanfare. And we went off the first city for the first year was Beirut. Then we're going to Damascus and then to Baghdad and Cairo and, you know, all the easy places. And seven cities, seven churches in seven years. And then uh, that didn't really work that way. But uh, so we're in Beirut and I'm just going, going, going. And things are happening, and people are meeting Jesus, and, and it's exciting. And I did kind of forget that I had a family. I mean, I remember because I'd see them at night, and they'd be all kind of crying and stuff. But I just thought, <laughs> this is the cost, and this is what I'm trying to do. And 
I mean, it's hard to even think now. It's embarrassing, hard to think what, what I was thinking back then. I mean, honestly, what I was thinking back then. I had a good dear friend named Floyd McClung who came to visit us in 1996, maybe 97, who just kind of in a very pastoral way, I don't know if any of you know Floyd, big tall guy, used to lead uh, Youth of the Mission. And he just sent me down. He said, Carl, uh, you're ruining your life. You need serious help. I think you actually need intervention. And I said, yeah, I mean, you know, I know I'm probably working a little bit too hard. People have told me I should slow down. He's like, no, that's not the problem. You need serious help. I want you to go for a week-long spiritual retreat to this thing called Healing for the Nations in Atlanta, Georgia. And I go, that's a weird name, Healing for the Nations, and it's Georgia, and I don't want to go to Georgia, and I, we're living in Beirut. I mean, he basically said, Carl, go. I'm just telling you, you have to go. And I, I kind of believed him. I just thought, I don't know what that is, but I flew off to this place, and it was kind of a weird... And they usually have retreats like like 15 pastors, 15 different leaders. But this one, they had two single old divorce ladies and me. And I was like, this is not a leadership retreat. What are they doing here? I mean, I'm a leader, obviously. I don't know what they're doing here. But this, and it's weird, and they're messed up, and they're divorced, and I don't, I don't like any of that stuff. And that's just, I mean, and they just, I mean, they're just, it was odd. And they said they've never done one before with only three people, but they did one for us. For, because they just feel like God spoke to them. I'm like, oh, great. And so... Basically, they kind of they ask the question, what's the stronghold in your life? You have to identify a stronghold. What's the, what's the lie that you've believed about yourself or God? Uh, that you've actually, it's a lie, but you've believed it to be true about yourself or about God. And, uh, and so they ask some questions day two, and it's getting down to, and it has to be like an I am statement. I am unlovable. I'm unworthy. I'm whatever you know. And that's the stronghold in your life. You identify it. You just repent of it. It's actually pretty basic and simple. It's good. And so they're asking me, and I said, well, I don't, you know, I think I... Maybe I work too much. Well, that's what's the I am. I, so I am, you can't say I am work too much. I am what? What? Is there someone driving you to work too much? I don't know. I think it's God, but other people think, seem to think it's not God, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. They said, well, maybe uh, do you feel like there's something in your past that is not resolved? And I was like, oh, let's not go to the old past. You know, I'm not the inner healing and inner life stuff. I'm just, I'm conquering the mountain. I'm a Marine for Jesus. You know, I'm not worried about so much what's inside there. And, uh, and there's this little lady, her name was Marie. She just kept kind of niggling. So we're sitting outside one day and uh, we're sitting at this picnic table. And she said, did you ever, how did you feel as a kid? I said, oh, you know, it was fine. My dad was busy and you know, he was a church planter. My dad planted 12, 12 churches around the Midwest as I grew up. And so we moved every couple of years as one would plant, you know, get going, he would move on. And so I didn't see him much, but, you know, it was a good, good life. And she said, did you ever, you know, did you ever, it feels like there's something that's driving you. So it's a reaction to something. I said, oh, maybe, I don't know. She said, uh, would you ever say you felt like a loser? Like you were just like a loser, and so you had to overcompensate to prove you're not a loser. And I said, do I look like a loser to you? And she goes, that's not the question. Do you feel like a loser? I said, well, obviously not. I mean, you know all these things that we're doing and people coming to Jesus and things being planted all over the Middle East. And it's, she said, I didn't ask. I said, ask anybody that knows me, is Carl a loser? Nobody's going to say, yep, Carl's a loser. We didn't ask about what anybody else thinks. How do you feel? I, well, I don't. I know. She said, well, what if the stronghold in your life is I am a loser, and so you've been overcompensated. I said, well, but it's not true. She said, well, maybe it's true. I mean, maybe, why don't you just say it? And then I said, well, I'd say it, but then that would be, it would be lying. Then I'd be a liar. And so she said, but it feels to me like there's something that you're working really hard to cover up, 
And I just kept saying, I'm obviously not a loser. I mean, look at my life, and I've written, and I've done, and I've spoken, and preached in mosque, and I've led, you know, and, and she's like, yeah, well, why don't you just say it, just for fun? <laughs> I said, okay, I'll just say it, but it's, I mean, it's stupid, because it's not even true. She goes, okay, well, I'll say it. I go, well, and I couldn't say, I mean, I, I could, first of all, I was not saying that, and then I couldn't say it. I actually couldn't say it. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to, I said, okay, I'll say it. I go, I'll say it. But I couldn't say, I actually couldn't say the words. And then she just said, how about if you repeat after me? I go, okay. She goes, I. I said, well, that's easy, I. And she goes, M, M, A, A, loser. I just don't want to say that because that's not true. Well, just play along. It's like a game. Or just, it's, just a, it's not even, you're right. I'm sure it's not true. Just say loser, the word loser. And maybe all together, I am a loser. I go, okay, I am a loser. And when I said that, I actually went like this. I am a loser. And I just burst out into tears. And my head actually hit the picnic tables. And I just, I laid there and cried. And stuff came out of all the pores in my face and stuff. And everything. And for like a half an hour. And just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And instantly, I knew that... Not any big dramatic thing happened in my, in my life. I was never abused or anything like that. I mean, I just always had felt like I was the little guy. I was, I was a loser. And so my whole life, I've been proving to myself and the world that I wasn't. In fact, I am so much not a loser that we're going to be a missionary to the Muslims. And not just any Muslims, but to Arab Muslims. And not just any Arab Muslims, but Lebanese Arab Muslims. And not just any Lebanese Arab Muslims, but the Shiites. And not just the Shiites, but the Hezbollah. And not in a church, but in a mosque. I'd already been preaching in mosque. And we're going to go to the heart of the hardest, hardest, because I am not a loser. And that had driven, internally, had driven me my whole life. And pushed me. Nobody ever pushed me. Nobody ever said, Carl, you need to kind of, get things going here. I mean, you're kind of slacking. Nobody's ever said that to me because all my life I've been working so hard so that nobody will ever say I'm lazy or I'm a loser. And in the midst of that, I mean, literally because of my own drivenness, I'm hurting, killing my wife and my kids. I'm not meaning to. I don't want to. I'm not thinking that I am doing that. I'm thinking that I'm obeying God. Something broken me that week at this place called Healing for the Nation. And I would just say, I would encourage you, especially men. I don't know about women. I know some women are as equally driven or more than some men. I know that. But I'm a man, and so I kind of know how man, men are wired. And I would just say to you men who are wired, and you know who you are, and you know, and your wife maybe was, has elbowed you already at least once while I'm talking, that you're that driven person. And you call it being faithful and serving Jesus. But actually what it is, is you're an extreme, extreme Martha. And you've actually never looked at or dealt with the things in your life, in your heart, down deep inside of you that, have, that drive you, that push you to perform and perform and perform. And you've never cared for you, you've never tended your heart. And because of that, you've hurt your wife and your kids. And actually, in the end, you're, you're hurting your own soul. And I think the word is just called Repentance. I repented by blowing snot all over the picnic table in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, seriously, it was actually disgusting. And then there's been a process. That is still my default, by the way. My default is still to work too hard. My default is still to be driven inside of me and to drive people even away from me because I've got a task to accomplish, and if you're in the way, 
I'm going to run over you. That is still actually my default. So I have to be very aware of that. I have to talk with Chris. I have to submit to her as well as her to me. And I have to, uh, Bart and Linda are part of a team of people that, that meet with Chris and I regularly and hold us accountable and just pray with us and love us. And Greg and June Thompson, who go to the, uh, the pastor of this church, Greg Thompson, he and his wife June are on that team as well. And then another couple in Phoenix that aren't, aren't here tonight. And it takes all of them and more to, to help me recognize my weaknesses and to know that Jesus is concerned about the condition of my heart. He's not it's not, that he, he's, it's not that he's not concerned about what I do. He's concerned that I do it from the right place, from the heart of Mary. I think the Marys can be very busy serving and sitting and listening. There's, I don't, there's not necessarily a problem with being busy. I don't want to be lazy. I don't want to not produce anything. I want to do it from a clean heart, from a heart that's leaned in towards Jesus and submitted to him that cares for my wife, that doesn't, doesn't come home at midnight saying I've been out leading the nation to Jesus but forgetting you. That's not the heart of God. That's not the way of Jesus. And I actually think it feels, it feels good to confess that. I've, I've told this story to a few people before, so you're not the first ones, but it feels good to confess that again and just say, for you guys that deal with this stuff too, man, take it seriously. Get help Confess it to your wife, confess it to a friend. Counseling, uh, this group called Healing for the Nations has been great. Actually, David Ferguson, who you heard talk uh, this afternoon, his Intimate Life Ministry, the Great Commandment Ministry based in Austin, they're fantastic dealing with this kind of stuff. Don't ignore it. Actually deal with it. Amen.